it becomes suitable to burn for humans. So he takes some of the wood and warms himself. He kindles fire and bakes bread. He fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of it he burns in the fire, on that half he roasts and eats meat, and he is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm watching the and the rest of it he makes into a god, into his idol, and he bows down, worships, and prays to it, saying, Save me, for you are my god. He doesn't think, half of it I burned in the fire, and I baked bread on its coals, and roasted meat and ate. Should I make the rest of something detestable? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He's feeding on ashes. His deluded mind has led him astray. He can't save himself and say, Isn't this thing in my hand a fraud? Remember these things, Jacob. Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. I won't forget you, Israel. I swept away your rebellions like a cloud and your sins like a frog. Return to me because I have redeemed you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes we forget the logic of God. We ask that you will remind us to teach us to temper our emotions and our desires with that which is truth. We ask that you be with Jane today as she leads in our discussion and with each person here, that they may have a Sabbath blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm leaving the scripture on for just a moment because I want to point out the word words in tongues. you. The above discussion of Isaiah is about forming an idol, about people forming their own gods. And God turns around and says, I formed you, and you're alive, you're active. Uh, moving on now to a God with an active face. I'm always kind of looking for metaphors or paradigms that illustrate and analogously the gospel. The, the particularly hard, difficult things in the Old Testament. As you know, that's my area of attempt to understand the Bible. And uh, I couldn't pick a harder area for everybody on the planet, it seems. And I think, I, you know, when I was a child, nobody questioned the God of the Old Testament. <laughs> but now that uh, we're here in this uh, millennia, uh, that seems to be everybody's question, whether atheist or Christian, uh, and, and whether almost every religion. And uh, even if you deal with the Quran, the issues are the same for both the Muslim community and the Christian community. So uh, I was delighted over Christmas break in my preparation for a new class that I was to teach uh, called Biblical Ethics to come across a new metaphor. And it was, it was posted on my Facebook, uh, not the link, but uh, it was posted on the newsreel. A study done by Edward Tronick uh, quite a few years ago, 1978, uh, and he did an experiment in the study, he and some colleagues, of mothers with six-month-old infants. The mothers would bring their infants into the study, and they would hold the infants on their lap, and they would engage them in face-making. You know the scenario. Those of you who have been parents, and even those of us who haven't, we've held babies on our laps and we've made faces. And that's a way of engaging the baby getting the baby to smile, to laugh, and to mimic the face. What the study showed is that uh, the mothers would engage their babies for uh, maybe some minutes, and then they would have to go into a still face mode. Now, I could not subject my six-month-old to this. But they would go into a still face mode for three minutes. Now, to an infant, that's a very long time. And the infant would 
would try to re-engage the mother and the mother would just have to remain still. And pretty soon the, the baby would get to the point where it was frustrated, angry, start protesting. And then when nothing changed, would finally lapse into silence and start ignoring the mother, giving up. Apparently they did this several times. So what the article that talked about the studies suggested is that this is foundational to empathy. The ability to feel with another person, to enter into another's feelings. This has enormous ethical implications. But it, be, it goes beyond that because it seems that, I'm not moving the slides fast enough, uh, it seems that there's, there's other things that take place. There's trauma, there's distrust, there's detachment, there's a tendency to not feel even like you're real to the other person. Uh, Erickson uh, talked about this study also in an article that um, Greg sent me. He suggested that something of our identity is involved in this. That our, the perception of, of that reciprocal uh, engagement uh, establishes who we are. Uh, something of our ability to identify ourselves. So, uh, I am convinced as an ethicist, I, I don't know that I should call myself an ethicist, I'm a teacher of ethics. Uh, but I, I have taught ethics now for many years, not quite all the years I've been in the department, but many, many years. And I believe that empathy is the most in core ingredient of ethics that you can find. That without empathy, we are incapable of understanding the harm that we are capable of doing to another person by what we say and what we do. And there's a, a book, if you, if you are, have a dark side like me and like to read about the Holocaust, <laughs> um, there's a book that you really should put top on your list. It's, it's the, the, the greatest book I have ever read about the Holocaust. It's a sad, tragic story of Albert Speer, who was Hitler's uh, architect and who, who claimed throughout his trial at the Nuremberg trials that he did not know a thing about what, was, what Hitler was doing. He was totally, totally ignorant of what went on. Uh, Gita Sereny, a, a journalist, decided to visit Speer after the Nuremberg trials and to meet with him. She met with him for three weeks every day. And she pushed him and pushed him and pushed him to try to get to the truth. And he came this close one day to stating that he knew. And she thought, aha, tomorrow we're gonna to have success. Tomorrow he wouldn't hardly talk to her. But what she discovered and what he opened up to her is that in the, in the post-World War I era of Germany, parents uh, treated their children as objects. They were seen, but not heard. You've heard that expression, particularly about that time period. The family structure was, was formal. It was a, an attempt to isolate children and keep them to themselves and, and not hear them and not listen to them and certainly not engage them. And so children uh, grew up in a, in a, in a kind of almost mechanical world. Something like Gattaca, if you've ever seen that movie. The Bonhoeffer family, I think, is one of the unique exceptions to that time period. So, what I discovered, and, and you've heard this spiel before, that the concepts of active and still faces parallel very nicely Norwegian theologian Torleif Bowman's study Hebrew thought compared with Greek, in which he points out that Hebrew thinking is dynamic, while Greek thinking is static. So what, what to me this, this study of Tronix has done is actually put a face 
on something that otherwise would be very abstract. So, here's a question for you. Does the Old Testament God have a still face or an expressive state face? And I asked my students this. You know, I got this, this study, hold of this study uh, on Christmas break. And so all winter quarter, my four students have been subjected to this in all three classes that I taught. And I heard it coming back from them in all three classes. So I know that this kind of stuck. And they all agree. Yes, the God of the Old Testament is an active face God because look at what he did here and what he did there and, and so on. We see his face and his action. So artists like Michelangelo and Blake tended to portray God with a certain stillness. But they also portrayed the Old Testament God more expressively, angry and harsh and vindictive. If we had to choose between the faces of God on the left with the faces of those on the bottom, which would help us develop greater empathy. And here's the real conundrum. Is an angry, stern face better for our psyches than an unresponsive face? Uh, these two pictures of Blake, no, I'm sorry, are Michelangelo. The one at the top corner is Michelangelo, and the one on the left corner at the bottom is Blake. That's, that's when, when um, Solomon is in the Witcher Indoor and there's a sandal on the right? That comes up. No. no, that's his job. This is Blake's job. Oh, it's job. It's very similar. <laughs> Which does make you wonder about <laughs> what Blake is trying to portray there. Blake was always kind of conflating God and the devil. Uh huh. Yeah, well, Blake was really in. Blake was into the kind of the good and evil, yeah. where they overlap. So I, I really would like an answer to the the last question. <laughs> yeah. Well, going back to childhood studies, I know that there. I have a relative that whose father would ignore their child, and he would. His dad would read. He would bug his dad and bug his dad and bug his dad until he finally blew up at him. And the child then felt at least that he'd been acknowledged. And this is personal experience, not my own This is not really kind of a talk. Yeah, no. There you go. No, this is for real. I mean, yeah. And so I wonder if perhaps that is an answer that we need some sort of response from whoever we are trying to interact. What would happen if you had baby Israel using the nation of Israel as a metaphor here, or, or the babiness of, of Israel as a metaphor? A baby Israel incapable of making faces because of slavery. There's a, there's a way of looking at Israel coming out of Egypt in terms of the birth model. And, and here's how it works. Israel uh, starts the gestational process by Passover, where they eat the lamb. And then that moves them on forward to the point where they're ready to enter the birth canal, i.e. the Red Sea. <laughs> and then, down the other side, uh, God feeds them water and food himself. They don't get it from natural sources. Uh, and then at Sinai, they're now old enough to need some rules. Yeah, you follow me? Okay, so that, that's one of the models for this. Uh, what, if, what if God tried to make those baby faces and Israel just can't respond? And the only thing Israel can respond to because of slavery is this harsh, angry view. Uh, the, the alternatives are not pleasant. Uh, I think an angry face really allows one, or would encourage one to be a, a very frightened believer. Whereas the still face leads to an agnosticism. <laughs> yeah, he do, he's not there, I'm not there, yeah. he, and, and he's not there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it isn't a comfortable read, and I intended that. I, I wasn't, wasn't planning on a soft sell on this. <laughs> So, I mean, you could say that it depends on the situation then, or you're beginning to say that anyway. Yeah. Um, I won't say who, what, where, or when, but I know of a child who has serious 
or had serious problems with violence. And um, in the process of letting that go, um, in one circumstance, he, he was frustrated and angry about something. And in the process of that, he picked up something very, very dangerous. So the person that was working with him gave him a no response space, and he dropped the. Mm. He dropped the. Uh, I know of a couple of children whose father beat them, and I mean beat them mercilessly, in front of a picture of Jesus. This is not an Adventist father, but it was a uh, Christian father. I can put that in quotes. And God has, one of the children has given, been given a still face of God and can't relate to that. Yes? Yeah, that was just highly irrelevant. But, um, so, so Blake's mythos is that there's like a creator God who is then overthrown more or less by the God of logic and reason, which is the God that he usually depicts years in. But that, that is a sort of broken state that gives birth to these two other gods, which I think gives birth to the Christ figure. It's all very ridiculous. But um, so Blake's sort of static based God is not the God that he thinks we should be worshiping, it's the God we are worshiping. So. The, the God of the three friends, I, I would suspect. Yeah. And that's important to know. What do you do with Michelangelo? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking that when the Israelites came out of what they'd gone through in Egypt, maybe as a nation they were autistic or had Asperger's, and so they had to be um, related to in a different way until everybody got better. I don't know. <laughs> I relate something to that because I remember teaching in a city, high schoolers in Miami, downtown Miami. And I had to admit in my first year that, you know, getting accustomed to the Christian schools and we'd be walking really sweet and nice and tell the kids, I realized that this was not right. These were wild children, these were children that were just totally just undisciplined. So my second year, I came in as the army student. This is what you do. In the 10 minutes when school starts, you walk into my classroom in the free sentence. If not, you're locked out. I mean, I was very stupid in the first weeks. I didn't thought I was the biggest witch ever. But I knew what I was after. I knew that I was going to get the behavior that I wanted in order for these children to learn. And I got what I wanted. Because the ones that they warmed up to me, and I didn't have to be angry anymore. So I think in the beginning, depending on who you're dealing with, slaves, God is dealing with slaves, people who just have no kind of discipline, self-discipline. They were just like animals, just moving. And so he came in and says, okay, before you can get to understand me, before you can understand and get my benefits, you have to become self-disciplined. So here's certain things you need to understand. And this is the law, and this is what I'm giving you. Okay. And so people have a problem with that tyranny, but it's, it's needed when you have to come in with a bunch of children or people who are undisciplined. Who don't know when to stop, who don't know when to do things when they're supposed to. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, another study that has been, has, I think, more recent than Tronix has shown that spanking children reduces the gray matter of the frontal lobe. So that they actually, uh, and it's in the area of self direction and self control. So that you're actually reducing your child's ability, correspondingly, to be able to self-direct and to exercise self-control and to make decisions for themselves. Um, and I, I dare to share this with two classes, and in each class it was like a dark cloud just suddenly came down in the classroom and everybody just looked really, really sad. <laughs> like, oh no, we've been robbed of our gray matter. <laughs> But I think it's important to realize that, and, and, I, and I thank God for the fact that my mother only spanked me once, and it was hardly a spanking. <laughs> there, was, there was very, very soft contact, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it almost seems like uh, Bonhoeffer may have had the picture of God on the bottom, because he was able to convince himself 
that uh, in certain situations there are drastic measures needed and that you can justify almost anything with the God on the bottom. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't think, you know, it's hard to know what his picture of God really was because he can go the other way very, very easily. And, and of course, it depends on how you read him. Did he start out? He started out kind of neutral, then went to New York to Union Seminary, Theological Seminary, where he met uh, a Frenchman whose name I can't remember. And, and the Frenchman convinced him to be a pacifist. And uh, so he remained a pacifist until he confronted Hitler. And then, then it's muddy from there, depending on who you read. Uh, did, he be, did he stay a pacifist or did he change his mind and, and join uh, this kind of guy? Greg? Just, this is one, what my comments about. Just along the way, he, he also discovered the American Black Church. Yes, I, was, I almost mentioned so that. There's, there's, there's a different image there. I just want to sound an historical footnote uh, of caution against stereotyping the Germans. Uh, sure. and, and, and the German family and that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, there's, there's this huge thick book still gathering dust on used bookstores called The Authoritarian Personality, which a bunch of social scientists generated about German uh, character and national character and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's one of the most useless pieces of social science ever done, and the reason why uh, as, as Stanley Milgram demonstrated not long after Eichmann was caught and hanged, uh, create the right social circumstances, you can make good red-blooded American men uh, do bad things to bad people. Well, I, and yeah. just one other thing about the, the history, childbearing manuals from the 1920s in the United States have a great deal of counsel against cuddling kids uh, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff. John Rose Watson, founder of American Behaviorism, uh, made a career out of selling baby powder and child products, and also childbearing manuals uh, that, that counseled against a lot of stuff that just seems like natural emotional interaction between kids and us. So I think there was something about that the time period yes. across the Atlantic yes. that we, we need to be cautious about, particularly national character things. Yeah. I, mea, mea culpa, uh, I, I almost mentioned, and I should have, that um, I see this in America, I see this in Europe in general, mm. that this was happening at that, in that time period. And, and speaking of autism, uh, it seemed like my grandfather's generation, which was the generation pretty much that became, reached adulthood during World War I, that generation seemed in, less socially capable of interaction, of engagement, at least my observation as a child. Well, unfortunately, and I know we're not talking theology right now, but I mean, I'm not going to, but unfortunately that's coming back because I don't know how many of you, I, I'm thinking, well, I, I guess I'm glad there's this public service announcement, but I'm very sad that it needs to be there. There's a, a big PSA that you see all the time if you watch TV. It's called Talk, Read, Sing. And it tells people that they need to talk, to read to, and sing to their children, that their minds are developed in the first three years. And I'm sitting there going, why? Why do, we, why do I need to be told? Isn't that just the natural? But no. And there's another, there's another one that breaks my heart that, that shows, and of course it's staged, but I mean it breaks my heart that this has to be said. Here's a mother doing this, and there's a kid in a playpen. And she's got her back to, you know. And so we're unfortunately, apparently, going back to that, not because we think it's right, but just because of, yeah, I want to say ignorance, you know. So like I said, every time you see that PSA or you hear it on NPR, well, it's like, well, I guess I'm glad that people are saying this, but I'm sad that it needs to be said. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, Steve. I, coming back to the paintings, I, you say that the Michelangelo portrays God with a certain stillness. And I have to confess for me, the Sistine Chapel thing, I, I have never seen it that way. To me, it is a God 
uh, who, who has a background that looks far too much like a brain, that is rationally and emotionally making contact with humans, uh, that seems like a, a nice, nurturing, interactive image to me and not one of stillness. Okay. Yeah, and I contradict myself by raising about angry faces anyway, because that's not still. Uh, yes? Well, I, when I, you know, I was just thinking about having parents. And her parents basically had given up. They didn't know what to do. Like, the child was angry and out of control and all that. Then a teacher came into the picture. And she realized that the parents were an impediment to her, her work. So she told them, okay, either he buzz off, let me do the job or I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> and so she took over, you know, you know the story. <coughs> it was harsh at the beginning. It was harsh treatment. But then a wonderful redemption emerged between teacher and, and student. And that seemingly hopeless person became, you know, a big person, uh, an inspirational person. So, you know, that there is both a qualm about harsh treatment and a redemption if it is done. So, so I, am I hearing you that for God to be angry in the Old Testament is better than for him to be still fixed? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I worked at Vacaville State Prison as a physical therapist for a short while anyway. And I would read my patients' files that were about a foot longer or uh, and I noticed the murderers that I was treating, when they grew up, they received spanking and not spanking. They were beat up every day. This one particular guy, his mother would beat him every day because she divorced or the husband left, the father left, and because the child happened to look like her ex, that person, he was put across the chair and beat every day. Of course, he became a murderer. You know, there's nothing magic about that. You, you know, it's cause and effect. You, you treat a child for so many years that harsh, and there's no empathy. When they kill someone in cold blood, you wonder how can anybody do it? Well, very easily. Because they have no empathy, that everything is wrong. Well, so, so when we think about an angry God, we want it to be as temporary and quick and overt as possible, right? Not prolonged. Because when it becomes prolonged, then it becomes unreasoning um, and something called abuse. There's a difference between being a disciplinarian and yes. being a vindictive punisher. Right. Mm -hmm. and then, However, you can read the Old Testament in the latter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other um, question I have is as human beings, uh, how do we actually see and identify the ways of God? we do it by reading stories about God, or do we identify it via our parents or our pastor, or, you know, how do we identify? You're jumping ahead of my script. Okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, one of the things, one of the things I think God has been stuck with for, since time immemorial with us, is that he entrusted to us to be himself to our children from the very earliest moments. And we have miserably failed in that. And so he has the challenge of, with all of our liabilities and all of our problems of trying to connect to us. Um, yes, Terry? Well, and I think this, this begs a, a really large question. This is hard to answer, and that is, at least for me, is how close to reality is the representation of God that we see written in the Old Testament? Well, it's definitely through the lens of the people. I, I mean, I think we have to say that. Otherwise, Jesus makes no sense. <laughs>
So I'm going to move on now because our time is fast going. Uh, here are just some examples of texts where um, you're dealing with an active face God. Uh, in contrast to the ancient Near East, God is the initiator. And I'm going to be, have a slide that, that actually says that. But um, one of the things I want to point out about this covenantal beginning with Abraham is uh, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and maybe I have this on a later slide, but Jonathan Rabbi Sachs, I'm sorry, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is actually Lord Sachs, has, has done a remarkable study of Israelite economy and Israelite covenant and, and so on. And he, had, he states in one of his uh, YouTube videos that <clears throat> the core of the Hebrew covenant is this bond of trust and trustworthiness. It is unlike a contractual agreement that you have elsewhere in the ancient Near East. It is not contractual. It is a bond of trust. Now, you can read it as contract if you want. But, but the core understanding is this understanding of Abraham trusts God. And God considers his righteousness. And, and understanding what Rabbi Sachs is saying, coupled with this uh, attempt to understand what righteousness means in the Old Testament, and recognizing it as an ethical term, predominantly. I have come to believe that this... This line that I've never fully understood before means that Abraham trusted God and Yahweh said, that's the kind of righteousness I want. I want a, a righteousness of trust and trustworthiness. Uh, so, so righteousness is not static, like we have tended to put it in via Romans and some other places that we have misread. Righteousness is active. It's dynamic. So here's an interrogative interlude. Uh, and, and I just answered my question ahead of time. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, so here's, here's more texts on uh, the active God bringing them out of Egypt. And then here's some ones that have to do with God's face. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you said to me, bring up this people, but you did not show me who you would send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my eyes. And now, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, Please show me your ways, and look, because this nation is your people. So Yahweh said to him, My face, this is usually translated my presence, but it's literally my face, will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your face does not go, do not carry us up from here. How can it be known that I have found favor in your eyes, I and your people, if you do not go with us, so that I and your people will be distinct from all people who are on the face of the earth? Granted, this is the writings of these people, um, but I, I find it troubling to try to reconcile a God just of these people who are going to be distinct from all other people, and a God who created everyone it is the God of everyone. It's like one child rising up and saying, these are my parents, and my parents are telling me to kill all my siblings, and, and that's okay because they're they're not really also the children of my parents. And, and I find it troubling. Okay, uh, yeah, two things. I'm going to do the last one first because if I don't do the last one first, it's not going to help anything. God, God initially did not tell them to go and kill. Yes, that's their reading of the text. That's their, and I can I could show you that through. Right. Through, but even uh, this last sentence about, you know... I, I yeah, distinct from all... Okay, and, and, and keep in mind, uh, this is not an issue with all the other people on the earth. They don't know Yahweh and they could care less about him. Because every god is a political figure. That's, that's the problem. You, in that setting, in that way of looking at things, this is, this is something that is simply between us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have other people that he's trying to work with from a larger perspective, outside that box. Does that, does that help at all? It, it helps to, to think of these as human thoughts, however inspired and expressed through human means. I mean, later on, there, you'll find a text where God says, I, I have Moab and I have this, within this nation. 
And, but that, at the foot of Sinai, or, yeah, they're at the foot of Sinai. <laughs> they're not ready for that. So this face comes up in the covenant. And when Moses asks to see God's glory, God's face cannot be seen. And, and that's very puzzling. If you understand ancient Near Eastern idiom about face, to see the face of someone was to be in their favor. When Absalom uh, slew Amnon and uh, got banished by David, David says, he shall not see my face. Why? Amnon's in, and Absalom's in disgrace. So uh, this is very puzzling. Why can't we see his face and live if his face means favor? And the truth is that what God is saying is, you can't handle my grace and my love and my favor. It's simply not possible. You can only handle my wrath. This is one of the strongest explanations in the Old Testament for why God is angry, or viewed as angry, you might say. So they, they have to, Moses can only see God's backside, and so this happens... And God reads to Moses his face. This is this is my face. Vicky. It reminded me of this little quote that I saw the Reader's Digest or TV Guide or something, where they were putting gratuitous quotes, you know, on a page. It said, without being in the least hypocritical, to every friend we show a different face. And uh, and I'm also reminded of the that just to say all that every child takes their favorite if you have a good parent. And that, you know, that sense of, of having individualized relationships with every child and showing them a face that's appropriate for where they are yeah. um, may be some explanation for that whole distinction, distinction. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain? He's, his face is shining so brightly from seeing God's backside that people run away from him and he has to veil his face. We're going to meet that veil again in a different context. I want to turn now to idolatry, which is where we started out as our scripture reading. The forerunner of stasis, in my opinion, was not with the Greeks. It was with the Babylonians, and with the Canaanites, and with the Egyptians, and probably with some people we don't know about in terms of idolatry. Once you create a god out of a wood, piece of wood, you have created a still-faced god. And as I suggested in this class before, one of the chief differences between Yahweh and the gods of other nations of the Fertile Crescent lies in the activities of Yahweh versus the sta stationary aspects of other gods. Our scripture reading illustrates how ridiculous idolatry could seem from a practical common sense level. Divine and royal statues emerged out of a belief that a person, god or king, could create their double and put their double in a strategic location such as a temple or shrine. The effect, deemed, was greater power. Static means power. If it's dynamic, it has to relate to the other, relate with the other, and understand some form of empathy with the other. But if it's static, it's fixed, it's dominant, it's tyrannical, and it's power. Such doubles could not operate on their own, however. I thought that um, one of the reasons that they killed one of the twins in ancient uh, civilizations was because they thought it was bad luck. Mm -hmm. or, uh, so it seems to be contradictory to this. Or was there too much power in the twins? That's why they killed one? I would say it's more, it's deeper than that. It's that you have two of the same to interrelate with each other, and yes, there could be more power. Uh, but there could also be, we can't handle the other two relating to each other. I don't know. I don't know all the dynamics that went behind that, 
I'm not, I'm not real familiar with that. But it, I, would, I would like to suggest that it's, it's this idea of fixing something and making it permanent and, and inflexible. That is what I'm talking about. That's the kind of power I'm talking about. It's inflexibility. The Babylonians had to do the following to their gods. And what, what this does, what static does, is completely change the, if I can use this word appropriately, dynamic of the relationship between the other. It completely changes it. Instead of relating with another, instead of understanding how another thinks, how another views things, instead of doing that, we now, uh, we, we, relate, we use others. We use each other. And here's how it works. Uh, the Babylonians provided a statue for them so they could be present in their doubles. They performed ritual, a mouthwashing to animate them. They performed a, wish, a ritual to open the mouth so they could eat, drink, and smell incense. That is function like an, a deity. They provided a house where they could live and stand. They fed them food twice a day with water and beer. They put them to bed at night so they could sleep. And that is very, very important. You need to know that. Uh, because you have whole um, myths that talk about the gods complaining because they couldn't sleep. So to have a bed for your god and put them to bed every night is just highly essential if you want a happy god. In fact, there's a story of Ezra Haddon. Uh, his father, his father Sennacherib, went up against Babylon and conquered Babylon and took Marduk out of his temple and brought him back to Assyria and put him in the temple before Asher. Uh, but that wasn't enough. He also brought Marduk's bed, which he didn't use for Marduk. He gave it to Asher. Because now Asher had Marduk's bed. He was supreme over Marduk. Because it's all political, you understand. And, and so Ezra Haddon is horrified when his father, Sennacherib, dies in battle. To die in battle meant total defeat by the gods. The gods had surrendered you to the enemies, and you, you had nothing. You were just totally shamed. And you had, didn't even get to have a decent burial. Well, so Ezra Haddon brings back Marduk's bed. He brings back Marduk, and he brings back his bed, so that Marduk will be happy with him, and he won't die in battle like Sennacherib, his father. Okay, so you put them to bed at night. Soothe or calm them with incantations or incense. Entertain them by taking in them on excursions in their chariots or by bringing other gods together for a banquet. Gee, just, yes. You're describing the marketing, a lot of the marketing points for those dolls called American Girls. <laughs> 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 don't think they come with incense. Or How do you know? <laughs> So, in, in contrast to the Babylonian deities who worshippers had to acquire their attention and favor, Yahweh initiates relationships of trust that he genders through marvelous acts, deliverance from Egypt, a theophany at Sinai, and providing of food and water. Remember that Israel begins with God initiating a relationship with Abraham. Um, Moses reminds God that his presence among the Israelites make them distinctive, the empty space above the ark without a divine statue, which, by the way, is distinctive, was filled with a flame, the Shekinah, a manifestation of God's presence. The original covenant God made, God made with Abraham was not a contractual agreement, but a bond of trust. And the Sabbath memorialized this act of God and kept appropriately, helped to ensure fair and good treatment of others, even of animals. Idolatry, the idols, I'm going to walk through this. Uh, they're likened to scarecrows in a cucumber field. <laughs> they cannot speak, they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. We just saw that mapped out. But in, in Hosea, the big beef the prophets have about Baal is that Baal is about power. He is this legal kind of uh, deity. The his title means Lord. Baal is not his name. Is his title. And uh, it's used in, in Exodus to refer to the husband of a wife. It's a legal term for husband. And so Yahweh says, look, why do you worship Asherah? 
why don't you realize that you are my wife? I don't need Asherah as my wife. Understand, they found a, uh, an inscription attached to an Asherah figurine in Israel that read Ash, Yahweh's, I see, Asherah, wife of Yahweh. So they viewed Yahweh as needing a wife, not realizing that they were Yahweh's wife. And so they were to be Yahweh's, not Baal, but Ish, which is a term comes closest to equality with Isha, I'm sorry, with Ish uh, as a term of equality. It, clearly to the prophets, the idols were still-faced deities. And they were worthless. And they made people worthless. That's how the prophets viewed them. <clears throat> so now we come to Jesus, the expressive face of the Father. And here are the texts that you know so well, that if we've seen him, we have seen the Father. And, and it's interesting that in 1 John 3, 2, John says that, uh, when, that we know that we will be like him for we will see him as he is. To see the face of God uh, is to see Jesus. And then we come to the second dealing with the veil of the face. And I would like to propose to you that God's active face today, and this brings us to this quarter's lessons, is the Holy Spirit. That his presence can be with each of us. And that we can actually sense his active dynamic presence in the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to move to the questions. What role does the Holy Spirit play in representing God's face to us? Is the Holy Spirit active or still-faced? I think Adventists like him to be still-faced. How can we know? What creates the fruit of the Spirit? If truth in the Hebrew essentially means what can be trusted, is the truth, the spirit of truth, dynamic or static? What happens to make people fixate their beliefs and refuse to grow in understanding? Now I'm using stasis and idolatry in a very different sense. Uh, is it by any chance a sign that the Holy Spirit is absent from discussion and the fact of absence of discussion means that he is absent? What does it take for a denomination of people to come to the place where they can genuinely listen to another viewpoint with empathy and respect, listening with an expressive face? I know we don't have much time. I'll give you five minutes to discuss. <laughs> I didn't purposely run out of time so that we couldn't say anything too outlandish. Yes. Um, speaking to number seven, I think that because of the um, problem of listening, listening to God, in the Old Testament it, it seems easy to listen to God because they wrote his words down, it sounds like he was talking to them, but in reality um, we have never seen that or heard that and he was speaking in the same way then probably as he is now and if we have people that can hear God speaking we give them medicine and make them make, make it stop if um, if you want to actually see people the way God sees them I think you have to keep reading about Jesus in the New Testament. Okay. 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 Uh, first thing that springs to mind, particularly given the leads that you have so abundantly provided along the way, the answer is it takes faith and trust. Uh, if you are anxious about whether you're right or not, uh, you're going to circle the wagons. And if you engage in dialogue, you're going to rig it to make it come out right. Uh, a stasis. Yeah. 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 Um, question two. 
I think that the Holy Spirit is active because the only way we know that that is it, he, she is present is through the actions of the people who are spirit-filled. And therefore, it's almost like being, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be that helpless, but almost being a puppet in a sense. If the spirit comes in and flows out through you, then you are active and therefore the spirit is also active. Can, can we move away from the puppet imagery? I'm sorry, that, I'm afraid yeah, that I know that stopped some of us. I couldn't think of it because I don't want to move away to here. to someone who is is with us and in, in empowering us um, to act in in the ways of the fruit of the spirit. Now, the metaphors that we have for the spirit are things like wind mm-hmm. and fire and fire, mm-hmm. right? So they and dove. Right. So we've been given almost mercurial, if you will, but very, very dynamic. Yeah. Hard to see, but you can feel it. Well, how can you how can you take wind and put it in a box and shut it up? <laughs> you can't. It dies at that point. Well, yeah. Can't. Well, it seems like. These days, maybe for a very long time, um, we don't actually see much evidence of the spirit as we hear about having a Pentecost and things like that. It seems that in our church, the only way we can see God's face in the spirit is through each other, through the time we see each other. So maybe there will be some other time, some other type, some other way. I personally don't look forward to that. It seems a little scary. But uh, that loving each other is is a good way that we can represent God to each other. That's kind of where I was headed. I, I didn't take another slide to say it. <laughs> but, um, the, the spirit is best manifested in community. Uh, and that's where he chooses to work best. And we become that the collective faces of God to nurture and to engage others. Um, so for me, this has got to happen. The spirit is to have the movement and the dynamic freedom that he needs. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is like a crow that we have to carry around that we have to placate, that we have to somehow get to act on our behalf. But that you are God who initiated your contact with us. We pray that we may respond and act in dynamic ways, not only to you, but with one another. In Jesus' name.